From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Wendy McClure, and my book is called The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. And uh, really the story is just that. It's about my obsession with the Little House books by Laura Ingalls Wilder and all the different things that I did to kind of revisit the world of the books, including churning butter and making bread and visiting the home sites. And uh, this passage is from uh, Chapter 7, uh, There Won't Be Horses, which is about sort of an interesting detour that uh, my boyfriend Chris and I went on uh, in our efforts to do things from the books and really just sort of live the pioneer life. So here goes. I'd made some recipes from the Little House cookbook with mixed results. The vanity cakes tasted all right, though they lacked the exquisite, airy, melt-in-the-mouth texture that Laura had described in On the Banks of Plum Creek, and which had always made me imagine them as the crispy creams of the prairie. They were the ones that called for two pounds of lard for deep-fat frying, and for the rest of the day after I'd made them, the whole apartment smelled like a state fair. I'd also made a meal of fried salt pork and gravy, apples and onions, and buttermilk biscuits one night for Chris and me. It was a raging success, though Chris pointed out that it was the sort of meal that was best eaten after a long day working in the fields, as opposed to migrating the contents of your inbox from the old version of Yahoo Mail to the new one, which is what he'd been doing all afternoon. I was getting tired of recipes, though, and I had only a vague sense of what else I wanted to do to live La Vida Laura, until I discovered my dream farm. Okay, so it wasn't my farm, but still... According to the website, Clover Meadow Farm sold homemade yarn and soap, raised heritage farm animals, and offered a peek into the past. We continue the same farm practices that our ancestors used over a hundred years ago, the page read. We, as in Samuel and Heidi, who lived only about two hours downstate. Heidi made soap, spun yarn, and made her own cheese and butter. Samuel had his own blacksmith's forge. They gave tours of the farm and hands-on classes in traditional skills. It was like a living history museum, except that it was real. None of this earnest volunteer in a pinafore stuff like at the pioneer villages I'd visited as a kid. The Ackersons were like the Amish, I thought, except without all the bizarre rules and shunning. Best of all, they were hosting their annual homesteading weekend in June, a get-together for like-minded people who would like to share their homesteading skills and learn from others— the activities usually included demonstrations in blacksmithing, spinning, weaving, and cooking on an open fire with cast iron. You could bring your tent and camp out next to the cornfield. Wait, so these people, you want to go to their house and learn how to make candles and stuff? Chris said when I showed him the website. Not their house, I said. Their farm. I knew it sounded a little weird, but these people were experts. They're really serious, I told Chris. They plow with horses and everything. Heidi Ackerson was extremely pleasant over the phone. I told her why I was interested in coming to the homesteading weekend, what with this Laura Ingalls Wilder hobby I'd developed lately. I've churned butter, I said, as casually as I could manage. Maybe you can help show everyone how it's done, she suggested. Really? Sure, I said. This churning business could get me places, I thought proudly. I liked the idea that I could trade on my butter skills in this homesteader economy. Didn't Ma Wilder trade her butter for tin? or use it to pay the cobbler, something like that. 
A few weeks later, we arrived at the farm, which had exactly the sort of barnyard one visualizes in children's books, like Charlotte's Web, teeming with geese and chickens and turkeys. It was even better than I'd hoped. There were tents set up already at the edge of the fields, and people had gathered around a fire pit next to the house. It all looked like a typical picnic, except for the two women who were working at spinning wheels. Spinning wheels, all right! Besides the spinning wheel ladies, there was a group with two sweet-looking older women in pastel sweatshirts, a tall, wiry guy with a baseball cap, and a woman with pigtail braids named Rebecca, who struck up a conversation with us when we sat down by the fire. We're from the same church, Rebecca said, of the group around her. In her lap, she had a guide to identifying edible wild plants, and she explained that she'd just been out picking a salad, which sounded impressive. I know how to churn butter, I said hopefully. I even have a churn. I told them about my fascination with the Little House books. That's great, Rebecca said. That was an amazing family. They just had so much wisdom, how to raise the livestock and harvest the honey, and all those things you might have to know if the supermarkets close. It's just such good knowledge, you know. Uh, yes, I said. At dinner, Rebecca served everyone styrofoam cups of hot yellowish tea. It tasted a little like mint tea, but with a slightly bitter note. It's homemade nettle tea, she told us, and she'd forged it herself. Nettles are so good for your skin and your lungs and your stomach, she said. They have so many healing properties. It's just amazing to think about how nature is full of all these things God made for us, and everything has a purpose that he wants us to discover before it's too late. Chris wouldn't take a sip of the tea, but just kept blowing on the water of his cup as if to cool it. It's not that hot, I told him. I know, he whispered. He set it down by his chair. After dinner, I went to the car to get a sweater, and Chris followed me. Is it just me, or are these people a little holy roller, he said. Dinner had started with a lengthy, multi-speaker blessing, thanking the Lord for providing food, revealing the path of righteousness, making his purpose known, and bringing like-minded people together. Look, some of these people who are into homesteading are just kind of like this, I told Chris. I was keeping an open mind. Still, I couldn't help but wonder when I was talking with one of the pastel sweatshirt women, Linda, and she mentioned going off the grid. Our church group did it for four days in December, she said. At first I thought she meant her town had had a power outage during an ice storm. Oh no, she said. Our church had a drill. We all stayed there to see what it would be like if something happened. We had a generator that we ran a couple hours a day. It was really cold, but I guess you've got to be ready, you know. Ready for what, I wondered, if what happened. It had gotten dark by now. Chris was sitting across the fire with Ron, the baseball cap guy, who seemed to really like Chris. I can tell you're a man of deep faith, I heard him saying, and I want to get deep with you. I needed to get Chris alone and tell him that the church group was a kooky survivalist sect. But before I could, Rebecca called me. Heidi's going to show us her loom, she said. Come on. All the women were heading towards the house. Oh, no, I thought. They're separating the men from the women, just like in cults. Oh, as it turned out, we really were just looking at the antique looms and spinning wheels that Heidi kept in an upstairs workroom. But I could only pay attention to conversations about yarn for so long, so I excused myself and went downstairs to the kitchen. The kitchen was huge, and there was one long wall of shelves holding dozens of mason jars of canned goods. It was a gorgeous arrangement, almost mesmerizing, Jars of peaches, fruit preserves, green beans, pickles, corn, tomatoes, even meat. Their metal lids neatly sealed. I looked closely. They were real. 
not just the comforting decor that I'd long become accustomed to seeing at places like Cracker Barrel. Rebecca, with the pigtail braids, had come downstairs, and now she stood gazing at the shelves, too. "'Look at those. Isn't it amazing?' she said. "'It really reminds you that there are ways to provide in a time when you can't go to the grocery store.' By now, I knew she wasn't talking about late nights when you have to pick up the milk at the Seven Eleven. I knew, knew that she wanted me to ask what she meant. "'You keep saying that,' I said. "'Could you, you know, elaborate a little as to the kind of circumstances where that could happen?' The tiniest smile flickered on Rebecca's face. "'Could you just, you know, clarify?' I asked. "'Well, with the economy failing and all that's happening,' she said. "'I heard that phrase, with all that's happening, mentioned a few times over the weekend. I suspected it referred to the recession, terrorism, and election of Barack Obama Antichrist. "'We're getting into an emergency situation, and people are going to panic. We just don't know what's going to happen next. Don't you sense that? And it's on a worldwide scale.' I nodded, only because I wanted her to go on. "'And all the disasters, which are signs,' Rebecca went on. "'I believe that we are in the end times now, and the Lord will summon us to heaven soon, but we don't know what will happen in this world before that happens, and we need to be ready. "'What do you think about that?' she asked. "'Does that scare you?' "'Thanks,' I said. "'I was just curious.' I really had been curious to see if she would say something like end times. Lucky me.' "'If you're worried, we can talk about it,' Rebecca said. "'Not right now,' I said. "'But thanks.' I walked outside. She'd said end times. End timers, who were waiting for the collapse of civilization, the way fans of the Twilight series awaited the trailer for Breaking Dawn. They were bracing themselves to endure the myriad destructive ordeals that would wipe out infidels, atheists, unrepented sinners, industrialists, government officials, and Salon.com readers, with the expectation that they, the prepared ones, would be among the worthy few who would be raptured to heaven either before or after, this part was never clear, the massive worldwide crap fest. I was heading back to my chair by the fire, but Chris intercepted me. "'If anyone asks,' he whispered, "'we've been married three years.' "'What?' I whispered back. "'Ron thinks we are. I didn't want to tell we weren't married. "'That guy is freaking me out. He was practically speaking in tongues. "'These people do survival drills,' I hissed. "'I know. Ron said they hit out for two weeks in the woods. "'He's freaking me out,' Chris said. "'What did he say to you?' "'Too many things. He's freaking me out. What did Rebecca say?' "'Rebecca said end times.' "'We're leaving tomorrow,' Chris said. "'Later on in the tent, I got out my notebook.' The church group's tents were only a few feet from ours, so we didn't speak for fear of being overheard. "'I'm so sorry I made us come to this thing,' I wrote in the notebook. "'I love you.' I handed it to Chris with a flashlight. He wrote, "'I love you too, but these people are freaking me out.' We passed the notebook back and forth, writing our conversation. We decided that we would take in a couple of the skill demonstrations the next day and leave by midday, sooner if things got any creepier." We also decided that if the end times ever happened, we didn't want to be anywhere the hell near people like Rebecca and Ron and would take our chances with whatever post-apocalyptic fate awaited us. I lay in the dark in our sleeping bag while Chris slept. I thought about Rebecca in her sundress and Birkenstocks and pigtail braids. I had been searching for Laura Ingalls Wilder, and I'd gotten hippie half-pint instead, half full of her crazy, crazy Kool-Aid made from forged berries. How had my quest for little house-style experience led us here? I remembered back to the 2005 Disney Channel TV movie remake of Little House on the Prairie that I'd seen, and how it starts, like the books, with Pa wanting to leave the big woods of Wisconsin. 
Only this movie version gives the impression that what the Ingleses really wanted is a lifestyle makeover. The movie makes the big woods seem like a downright lousy neighborhood. Young Laura narrowly misses a bullet fired by a careless hunter, and the nearby town of Pepin is as bustling as a strip mall with its incessant wagon wheel and horsewoody traffic noise. Pa hates doing carpentry work for an uppity, wealthy man who browbeats him and withholds payments. And whereas in the books a trip to the general store was always a fun occasion, in this version Ma stresses over the prices and the family budget, and Laura and Mary grab at candy, just like they were at a supermarket checkout. The subtext of these early scenes seems to be, surely there's a better way to live, a way to opt out of the materialistic rat race and the hassles of 1870s modern life. I could see how certain aspects of the Little House books could help nurture a 21st century homesteading dream. And while my default Little House fantasy always involved befriending Laura and exploring our respective worlds together, I knew that there was another extremely common daydream as well, one that cultural critic Anita Claire Fellman mentions in her book, Little House Long Shadow. One woman, she says, who wore out her Little House books, linked her childhood covered wagon play with a recurrent pleasurable fantasy that some unspecified catastrophe would prevent everyone from using modern conveniences. Admit it, you've gone there, and so have I. I considered this as I stared up at the ceiling of our tent. Who knew how many times those books made me idly wish for a now other than the one I was in, that the world would somehow crack open and reveal a simpler life. Too bad you won't be able to help with the butter churning, Heidi said the next day when I told her we were leaving. Yeah, something came up, I said, knowing full well how it sounded. Oh, you know how it is with our hectic Chicago lives. We city people, we never change. We went over to say goodbye to Ron and Linda. We don't know how long we're staying either, Ron said. This ain't really the stuff we're needing to learn. I mean, he nodded toward the barnyard, where Samuel was giving a horse grooming demonstration. This is nice, but it's not really practical for what we're wanting to do. Ron was a little creepy, but you couldn't help but feel a little sorry for him. Clearly, he was hoping this weekend would be more Soldier of Fortune magazine than Country Living. I wondered what kind of world he thought he was preparing for. I mean, there won't be horses, he said. Rebecca approached us one last time. To my relief, it wasn't to evangelize, but to ask about our future Laura Ingalls Wilder trips. So are you going to see Mankato, too, she asked. Mankato, Minnesota? Mankato? What's there? I was pretty sure the place had never been mentioned in any of the biographies, and yet it sounded familiar. The Ingalls family were always taking trips to Mankato, she said. Suddenly I realized what she was talking about. Oh, you mean on the TV show? I remembered now. Mankato, the town that the show's writers had designated as the go-to place whenever the plot veered into situations that required the amenities of a considerably larger town than Walnut Grove. Characters frequently went to Mankato to visit medical specialists, buy fancy dresses, and get into bar brawls. From the way the TV Ingleses played shopping trips to Mankato, you get the sense the place was a sort of 19th century Mall of America, but there's no indication whatsoever that the actual Mankato, about 80 miles from Walnut Grove, which back then would have been a three-day journey, ever served that purpose for Laura or anyone else in the Ingalls family. Rebecca nodded. But they must have gone there sometimes in real life. I don't think so, I said. The show made that up. I explained that most of the stuff on that show was made up and didn't happen in the books. Oh, she said. 
I only read the first book, and then I watched the show. It wasn't the same? She looked a little disappointed. No, I told her. So no, we're not going to Mankato. Why do you ask? It just always sounded like a great place, Rebecca said. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.